0: The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this, out. this
1: is going to be crazy.
0: This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm David Koester. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. Today, this is Ryan Park. I'm this is Ivan Davies from my family. I'm
2: Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Feet and D. This is Tate Fletcher, cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. I'll be coming to see you
0: Then we ask them the big questions Oh man, this is such a great question You've actually landed right on
2: the mark That's another really good
0: question It was great talking to some clever dudes I've gone
2: probably a little bit more in depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book I've
3: done like 500 interviews But nobody asked me about this (laughs) Oh, wow.
0: And sometimes we talk about darts.
3: There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favorite sport is darts. How athletic is that?
1: I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favorite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only
3: sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest.
0: The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously.
3: So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my
2: friend. But
0: we hope you will.
2: Welcome. I got my to the Mojo Radio Show. But
4: it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to the big red bus we've come to know as the Mojo Radio Show. We are heading due north this week to Culture Town.
3: Whoa, 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 Steady, steady Lola. Yeah. Does Lola have a it's a lot of good advice. I think she might. Maybe she should check the antivirus software. Maybe it's out of date. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, we have disinfected the bus. Not a corona to be seen, just a minibar full of Dosecchi's. Hello to all our friends at Dosecchi. It wasn't hard to disinfect the bus. We just had to let AP on and let him breathe. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of which, does any of our long-term listeners, the people who have
4: been on the bus for quite a while, do you remember this great piece of work that Robbo did?
2: Their charm is non-existent. Years ago, they worked in radio. Today, they don't remember a moment of it. They are the only grown men ever to fail a preschool spelling test. Every time they go for a swim, women and children run for their lives. Alien abductors return them to Earth with the words, we do not understand, tattooed on their foreheads. If they would give you directions, you'd end up at the closest pub, no matter where you really wanted to go. Their smell precedes them. The way of fart precedes watering eyes. They are the most interesting men in podcasting.
3: Where did you find that? Goodness me, that's been in the archives for a while. I reckon that was season... Two or three, uh, when on, yeah. we we were
4: early, we saw the virus. We saw the virus in season two or three, and uh, <laughs> circumnavigated that. Went with Do- hello, our friends at Dosaki, yeah. who actually sent us a couple of beers. That was a social experiment. For those who haven't been in the bus for very long, it was a social experiment. We had said hello to, to Corona for years, and we had nothing—not even a thanks or nothing. We did it two or three weeks with Doseki, and they sent us two cartons of beer, which was awesome. So uh, yeah. that was a bit of a science experiment. <laughs> which didn't last real long. True. Now, speaking <laughs> of which, uh, we don't have AP with us this morning. And I'll tell you the reason he's gone to the local bottle shop. Now, the local bottle shop, Dan Murphy's, have announced there's a limit on the purchase of grog from their stores, it's a daily limit. Hello to all our friends. In fact, the boys at Dan Murphy's do listen. The guys on the loading dock and the hardworking team out the front do actually listen to the show because they've been in touch. However, Dan Murphy's have set this daily limit. 18 bottles of wine, <laughs> three cask wine, six bottles of spirits, three cases of beer, three cases of cider, and three cases of premix. When AP heard that, he said to us <laughs> in the studio, That's not a limit, it's a challenge. Challenge accepted. So he, he's t- yeah. <laughs> literally taken the Mojo Radio Show Hummer down to Dan's to the loading dock to load
3: up. So uh, he'll be Just back. Just waiting shortly. for a call from the boys at Dan Murphy's to say, Come get him, please. <laughs> I'll probably need a trotter on the back of the Hummer. Robbo's
2: remarkable facts.
3: It's about time. Let's go. Uh, okay, I was making my smoothie over the weekend and got curious about bananas. So I figured I'd do a little digging on my, one of my favourite fruits and I came up with two doozy remarkable facts. First one, did you know that the bananas we all know and love, which are Cavendish, are in fact a hybrid of two other plant species? They've got no seeds and can only reproduce with the aids of farmers who remove and transplant part of the plant's stem in order to create more of the curvy yellow goodness. Do you also know why our favourite yellow fruit is curved. Uh, no, I don't. I should have thought about that. Bananas go through a process that's scientifically called ne- negative geotropism. And what that means in layman's terms is that bananas grow and they become too heavy for the plant and start sinking down towards the ground. So the curve in the bananas is due to the fact that the fruit has to go chasing the sun. So the bananas start curling back up. Mm towards the sun. And that's the reason some are more curvier than others. There you go. Is that remarkable? Remarkable. And I've got an interesting fact. Mm. Astronauts on
4: the International Space Station have delayed their return to Earth. (laughs) They have said, quote, unquote, our quarantine has a better view. How cool is that?
3: (laughs) I'd I'd be staying there too. (laughs) All right, everybody. This is Jason Overcome Redman. I may have survived an al-Qaeda ambush in Iraq. But it was even harder to survive the Mojo Radio Show.
4: All right, our guest this week is Patty McCord, who is a HR human resources consultant and executive. Now, this is a remarkable story. Patty was the chief talent officer at Netflix for well over two decades. In fact, Patty was the first hire. Back in the day, by founder of Netflix, Reed Hastings. And Patty was influential in establishing Netflix culture and this culture of empowering employees, but not only retaining those whose performance is excellence, but also working out how you say goodbye to those that don't fit the framework of your culture. This is a cracking show. I read Patty's book called Powerful, which I loved wrote to Patty and I think what's what you'll see from this show and you'll get from Patty's book is that Netflix is one of the most admired cultures in the world and this show and the book talk about how how did Patty and Reed and the team build this culture how did it run what was accepted and especially what was not accepted in a high performance culture that was taking on the blockbusters and video easies of the world. It's a good look inside the company and the guys that made it all happen. Patty is with us today. Patty, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Patty, when
4: you meet somebody who is not from Silicon Valley and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply?
1: Oh, that's hard these days because I have this life now that I totally, uh, made up. (laughs) Um, so, I tell them what I do is uh, I talk to a lot of people about the things that I wrote in my book, which is about rethinking the way we work. Um, And I realized when I left Netflix, where I was at for a long time, I went out in the world to find out, you know, I got to do a bunch of experimenting. I thought, what else are other people doing? And I started talking to other people and I realized not much, (laughs) So, so, so that's why I wrote the book. And I also kind of wrote the book so that I could have a new title and I could be an author instead of a former, you know, Patty McCord, former head of HR at Netflix, former Netflix chief talent officer. So now I'm Patty McCord, author of the book Powerful. Um, But the beautiful thing about the work that I do nowadays is that I get to choose where I go and I get to choose who I talk to. And then when I don't, I can be take my dog to the beach and visit my granddaughter. So
4: it's pretty sweet. It's really interesting you should mention that because I want to start there. There's, in your history, you were at Sun Microsystems and you said at that time you were a traditional HR person. And what I'm curious about is, do you recall the time or the moment where you embraced a different identity to go, I'm actually not going to be a traditional HR person. There's a new identity I need to step into from now on which is a role in hr which would challenge status quo and tradition do you remember that moment? Mm,
1: it was more like all moments you know it's a series of them and everything kind of builds on each other so i came into sun microsystems as a recruiter that was my those are my first jobs in hr and um Recruiting's a little bit different. So when you're recruiting, it's very much about matchmaking and ta- finding talent and really, really getting deeply into the actual work that people do. And in recruiting, you don't really get weird if somebody leaves, you're kind of happy because that gives you a new job to fill. <laughs> and you And you kind of look at the world and go, well, you know, people don't really people don't really stay at companies for the rest of their lives. That's a big fat lie, but you know, we're all telling it. So let's all keep telling it. So when I was at sun, I came in as a recruiter and then I ended up running um, their diversity program, affirmative action and diversity. And, that's when I started sort of playing with the edges of traditional HR, right? So how do we, could we solve the problems of discrimination in the workforce by training? You know, where was the issue communication? And it was through that work that I actually started looking at corporate culture. And I looked at it from a very anthropological Viewpoint, Right. If I'm in charge of seeing that the people in the organization have equal opportunity to pass or fail, then I have to look at what's really driving people's behavior. So that gave me sort of a lift into the huh, culture is a thing. And then um, when I took the next couple of jobs after Sun, I very, very much wanted to be what in America they call an HR generalist. And that was, you know, the person who was a partner to the business but upheld all the rules. And I think that once I really started doing that job of a traditional HR person, I really sucked at it. <laughs> I had a boss one time that said to me, she said, this is a true story. I come in on my one on one and she says, Patty, you know, you have a lot of ideas and I want you to know that we've had them all and they don't work. So we would like you to really just kind of stop having them. True, true story. (laughs) And I thought, oh, maybe I've picked the wrong field. (laughs) Because We're not supposed to have any new ideas. And so I really didn't get a chance to actualize it until Netflix. And that's partly because Reed Hastings, who's the CEO of Netflix and I, had tried both of us having very traditional roles at the company we worked at before Netflix. So Netflix was very much um, an opportunity and an invitation to me to do things differently.
4: Is is part of the the journey for you, Patty, in this is the work you did with engineers, because I've heard you say that engineers look at things and they're not just after incremental thinking or tinkering. They're actually looking for a new way to approach things. They get excited by that. Did that, that being amongst these people these engineers, did that impact in a way how you approached your role to take on almost an engineer's mindset?
1: A thousand percent. Absolutely. I absolutely would not have this perspective if I wasn't surrounded by them. And I actually have taken it further now when I start talking about things to other people. I say, you know, if we looked at uh, the things that we do, the disciplines and processes around managing people as a product – right not as a service then would we look at it differently so for example when i look at uh, the annual performance review okay what is that product what does it do what's the purpose of it right what what difference does it make in the world of work Is it is it a feedback mechanism because that's what we say it is, right? It's a way to to analyze your performance and give you feedback so that you'd be a better performer, right? That's the purpose of the annual performance review. But then if you use an engineer brain and you step back and go, really? I'm going to devise a system to improve performance that I only use once a year? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, right? So, whoa, 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 no, 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 it's, it's, it's a compensation mechanism. Okay, well, compensation is actually market based. It really is, right? You're worth what somebody else will pay you. That's kind of how it is. And so, is that a system to be done once a year? Maybe. Does it have anything to do with feedback? It's a loose connection, but it's not. A, it's a corollary, but it's not a direct connection. So you can see how my brain's starting to work, <laughs> right? I'm taking an engineer's approach to saying, okay. What is this thing and what problem is it trying to solve? And instead of saying, how could I make this thing better? I go all the way back and say, huh, if I started over, would I still do this? Right? And that's just the, the way that people who invent things think. I mean, that's what I learned from them. You, you never start with like, I could just tweak it and make it a, a little bit less painful be you know something like that. Like if I tweak it it'll be less painful instead of saying, why don't we have no pain at all? So then when you when you start messing with stuff like that, then you kind of all of a sudden the scales fall from your eyes and you're like, oh my God, there's stuff like this all over the place.
4: And it must impact then who you're looking for, Patty, because you've talked about at Netflix right from the start, you always assumed that you had smart people and you treated them as such. And then Reed said that in his mind, you guys were always looking for first principle thinkers. So this goes quite deep, doesn't it? When you put that engineer's mindset to it, and then you're thinking about the actual type of person, there seems to be a correlation between those things.
1: Yeah. And it's it's funny because it, it, this is something I also took years to Think about. I used to think that the IQ EQ thing wasn't necessarily related, but it is. So it's not just uh, the brilliant thinker; it has to be the brilliant thinker with great judgment. And, you know, in the beginning of the Netflix culture deck, we wrote down, you know, all these behaviors that we um, we look for in our colleagues. And I would say over time, the one that trumps everything is judgment. Right. Are you going to make the right call? And you know, without asking permission, without, you know, are you going to get enough input to make a good decision, a wise decision based on as much information as you can and, you know, and take responsibility for making a decision moving forward. And then if it's the wrong decision, you also want to be able to take responsibility for learning from that. Right. So that, that judgment thing, it's connected to maturity, it's connected to intelligence, but it's about that constant you know, willing to reassess, how could you do it better? What did you learn from this? What's a new opportunity? How do we think about it fresh? And that's that's sort of what we would look for.
4: Patty, that is drop the remote gold. Robbo, that is absolute judge. I've never heard anybody talk about that before. I've never heard anybody talk about that as a value or something to look for, because, man, it seems so obvious when you say it. To have a people, a bunch I mean, of people. Are, it's so listen, good. I, it is. I, it's gold. I,
1: I was doing this conference with a big HR team, and it was in one of those um, video conference centers where there were, you know, a dozen, a dozen screens on the giant wall, and each screen had people from different offices around the world, and there were probably a hundred people in each office. And one person says to me. Um, yeah, but, you know, we've got a real problem here with all the things that are happening in the Me Too movement. And as you know, it's our job in HR to investigate the instances of sexual harassment after they happen. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, no. It's our job to not allow it to happen. right? It's not our job to investigate it afterwards. It's to be have zero tolerance for this. And if people do it, they get fired. Next question. He's like, yeah, but I'm like, that's called judgment. Right? Is it right or is it wrong? If it's wrong, don't do it.
4: I think it's gold.
1: Well, thank you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote you. <laughs> my Australia, my my Australian fanboy club says it's gold, so I'm gonna say it again. No, it
3: is. That is um <laughs> would be the first time this show was ever quoted. Can I just say
1: <laughs> the mojo?
0: Man. Your mum
3: said we were pretty good. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Patty, something that
4: was I'm curious about, and this is in yeah. retrospect. Reed Hastings said that in the first few years that you guys were in survival mode and not really focused on culture, and it wasn't until you knew you would survive in 2002 when you floated, then he said you started to focus on the culture, which is where the deck was formed. If you had your time again, would you focus on culture from day one? And are you advising the startups and young hot entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley now that are in their infancy
1: should we start is is should we start from scratch you know you just got to pay attention to it I mean I I was just coaching a CEO last week who called me and I said you know how many people do you have and he said well you know we've got 39 and we're moving to 45 and we're wondering if it's time for you know to bring on some process people you know, HR people I'm like oh God, just go build this thing and make it work <laughs> you know just just don't don't worry about that stuff yet just because you've you've got a culture already and correct it if it's bad right because you can all be in the same room i can stand up and and say that was a dumb thing don't say that anymore that hurts my feelings and everybody goes oh okay got it you don't have that process to do that stuff but you have to pay attention to it are we being honest with each other are we operating at our best Are you know are bad things seeping in and just stay on top of it but you know at netflix we wrote the first chapter of the culture deck which is the behaviors that we value in each other very early on and we rewrote that six times the thing that we did very early on at Netflix that I do recommend people do is spend some time, you know, with your leadership team a couple of times a year and writing it down helps a lot. Here's who we want to be. Right. And then I and I often advise them. I'm like, just pick one or two things. You don't have to write the entire. So the Netflix culture deck took us 10 years to write. Years. Years. Right. There's chapters in there like high performance that probably took me four years to make a reality. Right. If I'm going to have a company full of high performing teams, I better have a damn good recruiting team. Because I got to find a lot of great talent, and oh by the way, I got to be able to figure out a way to say goodbye if it doesn't work out. That's not horrible and painful, and I got to figure out how the feedback mechanism is going to happen more often, (laughs) so that I don't have to wait till the end of the year when we do the performance review to 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 realize that we've got half the people on the wrong team, right? So, uh, all the all the all the internal stuff has to be examined when you look at culture. So, so another example was, I was with the startup CEO and I said, wow, that's, um, that's a lot of ping pong tables you got here. No, it was pool tables. I had three pool tables. And I, he goes, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really good. I'm a big fan of it. And I like to hire people who are good at pool. I'm like, that's interesting, since you." developing software. Um, And I said, so if you had your perfect company, what would it look like? And he said, well, you know, I'm an engineer and I'd want it to be efficient. I'd want it to run like a well-oiled machine, right? I wanted to have everything to happen in the right place the right time, you know, really efficiently. And I said, okay, so let's say you and I were playing pool and um, it's five to two and our executive meeting's at two o'clock, but I'm about to kick your butt. What do we do? And he goes... You're not going to beat me. I'm like, uh-huh, I am. And he goes, uh, yeah, but we've got four plays left. I'm like, yep. So what are we going to do? He's like, we're going to stick with this game until I'm done, right? Until I kick your butt. And I said, wow, you know what efficient companies do? They start meetings on time. It's sometimes that simple, right? You want it to be efficient? Then you decide what's priority. And if And if meeting with your executives to run the company efficiently is a priority, then you better start those meetings on time. And it's the little things, right? It's little things like that, that people who are leaders in organizations often fail to see. We believe in honesty and openness and integrity. Um, Can we see what the revenue forecast is? Nope. Right? It's, It's like, we believe, you know, we're transparent. No, I can't tell you that. That's a secret, right? So that's what makes people cynical, so that's why. So, my point is, what I say to people early on in startups is, yes, pay attention to it, but you don't have to pay attention to how you're going to be when you're 10,000 people when you're 100. But you got to pay attention to all the things that are contributing to being the company that you want to be at 100 people.
4: It's interesting, Patty, if we take a little off rant there, Reed, Reed called you guys, and I quote him. He said that at the start you were a dysfunctional culture to start with, but then he said you turned into a high-performance culture. Now, that's a situation, not only this guy in Silicon Valley playing eight ball, it's it's a situation you just talked about, but it's a situation a lot of us find ourselves in, where we are in a dysfunctional culture, but we want to be a Netflix. What? Where is the starting point? Because I know the deck you just talked about, I think we're leading into this. The deck is obviously a part. What are the critical steps to go that you guys went through to be from dysfunctional to a high performance?
1: I'll tell you what happened to us. It was st- the stuff of nightmares for most startups. So um, in the beginning, uh, our business was renting DVDs in the mail in the US. And so it was a very high capital market because we had to buy the DVDs and the stamps and the labor to ta- ta- tear them open and put them in the mail and mail them to people, right? So in every we didn't get any deals on the DVDs. We paid $20 a piece for them, right? And, they, and if you rented from us, you didn't pay us back for the cost of your initial three dvds and stamps the envelopes and the labor for a couple of months so the subscription business is a delayed gratification business It waits until you have a high base of people who are continuously putting money into the revenue stream to keep going but at the beginning you know you're always spending in the out years right so we, uh, we kind of had the business model figured out, um, but we were experimenting with a lot of things. So we had a fair amount of VC money. This is in the first dot-com bubble back in the day, uh, around 2000, right? And this was before unicorn companies. Nobody got a billion dollars, but we got a lot of money. And we were doing things like, um, maybe we'll do advertising because if we know what movies you watch, maybe we'll know what kind of car you want to drive. And maybe we'll do, we'll hire a bunch of people from Variety and People Magazine and they'll write reviews of movies, right? The, there'll be great, wonderful content. And maybe we'll sell movie posters. Maybe, so we had a lot of people doing a lot of experimenting all over the company. And um, we were going to go public. In the year 2000, we were going to be a portal. We were going to be Yahoo. From- and the dot-com bubble burst in the Bay Area, which was where all of our customers were, right? And our bankers pulled our IPO. So we had already filed for, for to go public. We had we'd already been talking with everybody about how we were going to have um, private jets and caviar and champagne and $100 stock. And then they pulled the IPO, we didn't have any more money left, right? So um, then 2001 happens, and Anthrax happens, and you know, Anthrax goes through the mail. It's a big deal in the press, and all of our stuff goes through the mail. And so in October of 2001, we laid off a third of the company. So we weren't very big, but still, 30% is, you know, one, two, three, one, two, three. And we said goodbye to anybody who wasn't technically competently working on either the website or the back-end distribution model. We said goodbye to anybody who was in middle management because we couldn't afford to pay somebody to tell somebody else what, what to do. Um, we said goodbye to the people who um, just, you know, were working on stuff that, that didn't matter, that wasn't directly associated with DVD by mail. And we said goodbye to all the babies and whiners. Okay, and after that, that Christmas of 2001, DVD players dropped to ninety nine dollars in the U.S. And everybody got one. Everybody, you know, everybody got one. And in the the only advertising we could do was a coupon in the player box that said try Netflix for free. And our business took off. I mean, the the subscriber numbers just went straight up into the right. But remember, I had to buy all this stuff. We couldn't afford to hire anybody. We, we still weren't make literally making money so we had to do twice as much work with a third as many people and it was more fun and that's how high performance was that's when we wrote that chapter like oh my god we have the right people in the room it's not more people it's the right people it's about that's when we coined the phrase talent density so, that, so it was for us, in some ways, I look back and I think how incredibly fortunate we were that this terrible thing happened. <laughs> and the other thing was, we were poor. I mean, we didn't have, you know, people would come in to interview and they would say, oh, at my dot-com startup, you know, we have marble conference room tables and all of us have on chairs. And I'd be like, you know, those on chairs cost $800. You know how many DVDs we could buy for $800. I divided the whole world by 20. <laughs> every chair was this amount of DVDs, you know. Every, every free thing was another DVD that a customer could have. And so that's our story. Um, so that's why it's really important that your listeners know that I'm not, nor is Reed saying, you should be like Netflix. What we're saying is, you should pay attention and be the right company for you and your customers. And and think about the trade-offs that you make by doing things the way everybody else does and calling it best practices. You know, it's
4: funny, Patty, having read your book, listened to your book twice, heard read, heard you interviewed, people, people hold up the Netflix culture as being successful the success of your book is proof that people want to know what made the Netflix culture successful. People want to interview you guys to hear about it, as, as we do today. What I want to know is, though, how do you know the Netflix culture was successful? Like, based on what? Who says that it worked?
1: <laughs> well, let's see. We can use any, any old metrics you want. Um, uh, the ubiquitous, largest. Is it, is it a metrics thing, though? It was always a metrics thing,
4: but largest doesn't mean great culture, does it? I mean i I guess this is interesting in your perspective because this is your hub is internally, how would I know because oh, I people think
1: both but no, but both 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 of them matter right right I mean, I think that people I do not think make, p- making people happy at work makes better product. I do not believe there's a correlation there. I do think that when people make great product, it makes them mm. happier. If you talk to so, for example, um, i'm I'm talking to a group of h r people probably a couple of years ago, in the middle of the unicorn madness in San Francisco. And this person I'm talking to, her job is uh, <laughs> employee happiness, right? And I'm like, what do you do? Well, we make sure we have really good beer, you know, craft beer. And, you know, I make sure that we have, you know, change the t shirts and we have really good product in the bathroom. And I'm like, why? And she says, well, because if we don't, then somebody else is going to have better beer and better t shirts, and our best people are going to walk out the door and work for them. I'm like, listen, if somebody's leaving you for beer, then you say, this is crazy. So I, I said, let me give you an assignment. I want you to find five people in this organization that everybody looks up to. The people who are there, they have they have heroic status. They may not have the title, but everybody knows they're the good ones. And ask them to tell you about a time at work where they felt like they, the day that they felt like they accomplished the most, the day they were most proud of at work. And every single person is going to tell you a story about something that was hard. Right. Because when you go home and you spontaneously tell your pet, <laughs> you know, or your spouse, it was a great day at work today. It's usually comma. We did it. We accomplished it. We did something. That's why metrics matter. Right. It's it ma- It doesn't matter if everybody's gloriously happy and nobody's getting anything done. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, have the world's happiest beer infused failed startup. It matters if you make a difference to to the customer. You know, when I look at Netflix, and and I will always forever think of this as my company, what I'm most proud of now is that even in its infancy, in the very early days, we thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool one day if everybody in the world could hear the great stories of everybody else in the world? Like, what if, because we all knew, because we did a lot of, you know, international films, and a lot of, because back in the day, that's the stuff that we could get. <laughs> that great stories come from all over the world. And that for me is one of the things I'm most proud of now. Netflix is the, you know, a global streaming entity that's creating fabulous stories for everybody in the world. That's success to me. And then you throw on the stock price <laughs> the, yeah, and yeah. the subscriber counts. And I think it's pretty yeah, obvious, yeah. right?
4: Was there a specific stated mission, Patty, that you all bought into from the early days that today still is the mission? And was it promoted? as much inwardly as it was outwardly? Like how, how did you guys approach mission or purpose or whatever the term?
1: Well, you know, it, it's it's going to seem a little cold and numerically driven, but there's another underlayer to it. So for years and years, what we strove for was membership numbers, right? How many subscribers did we have? And, you know, I remember the day we had a million subscribers, I couldn't believe it. But there's a, there's a nuance to it in that subscribers are different than customers. Subscribers come back, right? They keep doing something. And so in order to create a business where you wouldn't just give it up, it had to be something that had to continuously delight you and continuously get better. And so that was, and the fact that we were creating something that literally everybody could use meant that everybody in the company could have an opinion or an idea that mattered because we were all users. You know, I'd spent my whole life in Silicon Valley going, well, you know, I'm not a software engineer, but, and now software engineers would be like, yeah, that's right. You are not, (laughs) you know, but when I was at Netflix, I could go, okay, I'm a normal person, (laughs) you're not so so my idea actually has a lot of merit here because i am not an engineer and i am normal so there's something about creating a you know something that everybody around you uses that gives you that pride and that determination so you know when i left reed was like uh what we want world domination and now i told him i'm like are, are you going to mars i mean what now that you've got this?" What do you do
4: so so was there a do you recall a stated mission?
1: Oh yeah uh, let's see it, it changed over time, yeah, the first one was um, movies that you love always always give you movies that you love, and then I forget was we had a bunch of taglines, but we didn't spend a lot of Honestly, we didn't spend a lot of time on that mission, vision, values stuff because it just seemed, for one thing, I I personally just had done it my whole career. And I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure that this activity has ever netted anything that matters. Right. These these esoteric value statement. I mean, like, I want to be sure that if I go to literally anybody in the company and say, what are the top five things we're working on this year? I hear the same five things. Right. I don't, want to, I don't want everybody to be able to quote the mission. I want them to be able to say, you know, nail Latin America, get the service in the cloud, you know, make streaming start on start. <laughs> you know, it takes five years to, to actually press play and have it play. Because the technology, you know, we used to buffer, right? You forget how complicated this is now that it looks so easy. <laughs> right now, you think. I mean, I started at Netflix before we had touch technology.
4: And you, you got to know Reed Hastings exceptionally well because you were together in the trenches, the good, the bad, the ugly, for so many years. What's his superpower?
1: Um, he has all the all the qualities of a great CEO. He's very, very smart. Um, he's able to process information extraordinarily fast and he retains it a lot. I used to tell people he has the biggest hard drive of anybody I've ever met. Um, and, and he works on being a better leader consciously and actively and every day. And he's learned to listen better. That's, you know, the superpower, I think, of great CEOs is not just the ability to communicate outward because that is very, very important because you have to be able to inspire people and get the message across and, you know, m- motivate them to do great work that matters. But you have to be able to listen to their experience of how that is happening. And he's, he's worked on that a lot. He's good at it.
4: He said that he sees Netflix now into the future being a fantastic tech company, mixed with a fantastic content provider. Was there a moment one day, Patty, where maybe this is recent or back in the day where, because I know you guys used to carpool, was there ever a time where he sat there looking out the windscreen, the windshield to go, I could see us winning an Academy Award one day. I could see us doing content so good we mix it with the studios in Hollywood. Was there ever a moment where he saw that years before it happened?
1: No, not when I was there. I've been gone eight years. Uh, so when I was there, we were still struggling with it, the a lot of the technical aspects. So I left Netflix right at the release of House of Cards, the first Netflix original series. And that was the biggest gamble we had ever taken on a piece of content. It was absolutely terrifying, the amount of money we spent on that. We didn't know, and we weren't a studio. and And at the time I left, the debate was... Not so much as could we win an Academy Award someday. It was, you know, we know a lot about people's taste in filmed entertainment. And is there a way to now um, combine that information with creativity in a, you know, in a way that we could see someday us creating content that we know our viewers would love? So House of Cards was one of those that had all, you know, it was going to be a hit even if it was made poorly. I mean, you had Kevin Spacey, you had David Fincher, you had, you know, you had a, a it was the House of Cards uh, British version was already quite popular on Netflix, right? So it's like, if they do this well, it's a no-brainer because it checked off all, all of these marks for the kind of content that our people, that our customers love. Remember, Netflix has 20-plus years of information on what people watch all over the world. (laughs) And <laughs> so you combine that with the ability to now for Netflix to attract the most incredible creative talent in Hollywood because they want to come and work for a company that has a freedom and responsibility culture where they get they get the freedom to use their judgment to make their best work. And Netflix doesn't say, yeah, um, this is going to be a TV series and every 11 minutes there's going to be a commercial and the max amount of airtime you can have per episode is 22 minutes and and we're going to do it for one season, which is, you know, 57 shows. And so that's how you're going to tell your story in that format. Right. And oh, by the way, after you do a pilot, we're going to put it in front of the audience. We're going to analyze it and tell you what you can't do. So instead, Netflix says to, you know, whoever, Genji Kohan, um, a friend of mine, Lisa, I mean, um, Uh, A friend of mine, who's who's head of content, her name Cindy Holland, said to me uh, when when Orange New Black, she's like, yeah, you know, here comes this woman. She's coming off of weeds, off of all these seasons of weeds, and she's got this great idea about these backstories. And you know, we start talking to her. It's like, absolutely, just go make this. So they didn't say here's how many episodes, here's how long each of them should be, here's what the, you know, here's how many star actors we wanted. They said just go, go do it sounds great. And I mean, look at that. Right. So that's that winning, that, that culture combo for Netflix now. And I'm, you know, and this is, I'm not in there, but I'm uh, but I still see Reed and Ted and the guys is like, they tell me now that's, what's most important about the culture. Now it's not just the employees, it's the creatives who are like, wow, the freedom to make, to tell my story the way I want to.
4: Wow. And Reed credits Ted, Ted Sarandos is the guy who knows content. So Reed says, I don't know anybody who knows content as well. So if you take the leadership, the mind of Reed, and then he credits Ted Sarandos as the guy who knows content that he obviously has a, a huge degree of trust with. As a HR person, Patty, what makes that relationship so successful?
1: You know, I, I had dinner with Reed not too long ago, and I said, what do you do these days, boss? And he's like, Patty, I, I make almost no decisions. It's so great. My team is so confident now. You would just be blown away by them. He's like, you know, I walk around no pine now, but, you know, people are running their organization so incredibly. I mean, I think Ted's content organization, I can't even guess now how many people it is, thousands right? I mean, it's huge. Uh, So I think that, you know, I can't comment on how Reed's running the company now because I'm not there with him. But I would say that one of the strengths over time is the ability to build a great next tier wherever you are in the organization. Right, it's again, it's back to that talent density. And so, now that you have seven thousand people, that may seem like a lot of people. But you know, I talk to other media companies that have two hundred thousand people, and sometimes I wonder, you know, if they had the right seven thousand, if they couldn't get the same amount done. <laughs> right. So that's a. It's still about the concentration of you know the right people all over the world to do, you know, to make the right stuff for the customers.
4: But the other layer of that that you've that you've talked about and written about is the fact that and in your words, you've got to give them latitude. So you've got to have those right people, but then you've got to have that degree of trust in order to give them the latitude for that 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 today, that genuine trust, that that's something that's hard to come by, isn't it?
1: Well, we'll go back to my golden phrase, huh? <laughs> it's about judgment, right? If you think that somebody is a smart person who's going to make the right call on behalf of the customer, then the missing piece is not trust. The missing piece is context, right? So I, I say to people sometimes, you know, when you look at somebody and they, they're talking to you about what they think about something and you think, God, this person is clueless and they don't know what they're talking about. Close your eyes, count to 10 and say, maybe they are. Maybe they don't know, right? <laughs> maybe they're talking about something they literally know nothing about because no one's told them what you know. <laughs> so you you can say to them, what leads you to believe this is true? How did you come up with that opinion? What's your information backing that, you know, why, why you think about that? And then you realize, oh, oh my God, that's actually changed quite a bit. or here's more information, more data. And in in the Netflix vernacular, it's called Context Not Control, which is giving everybody lots and lots and lots of information, being very, very transparent about everything so that if you want to, you know, that you know you're going to have to make decisions. So you do a lot of homework to make sure you understand the the consequences of the decisions that you're making. And that's another deep... um, Variant to the culture that doesn't get talked about much, which is you know the freedom and responsibility part. Most people focus on the freedom, but the truth is the trust part comes from responsibility. If you say you're going to, I have to believe that you will. I have to. You have to prove it to me over and over again. And that if you say you will and you can't, aren't able to, then the way you you develop trust with me and the way I think you have good judgment is when you come and say. I was wrong. I'm not going to be able to make it. Here's what happened, right? Here's new information I have that I didn't have then. So you create those systems not by doing you know, free-falling ropes courses with your teammates. (laughs) You you create them by doing what you said you're going to.
4: Radical honesty is something which is obviously talked about a lot in the book and it's something that's part of your message to people. But something I heard you say, which I thought was really different to, to the context you'd normally hear this in as you said it's not just about speaking radical honesty, it's about hearing it. and That's the bit that I think I observe it comes unstuck is I'm happy to give it, yeah. but I'm not happy to hear it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I think is kind of funny uh, over the last couple of years is how we have to use the uh, modifier radical like, why is it radical to just be honest? <laughs> right? I mean, we could skip the radical part and just call it honesty. And, it, and if it was just honesty, then maybe we could hear it better. Right? It's so radical. Oh, my God. It's like, you know, I mean, I, the examples I use are not, like, knock you on your feet. Like, you know, I'd really like you to stop doing that. It irritates me and makes me crazy. And you say, Okay. Not that
4: radical. (laughs) Do you know, it's interesting, Patty, hearing you talk about all this. We had a guest on the the show, end of season six, two guys, Matt Best, who's a former Marine and his partner, Evan Hafer, who's a Green Beret, who run a very successful coffee company in America called Black Rifle Coffee Company. And these guys are extraordinary. The business they've built now and the rapid growth they're going through, but they're so down to worth. They've got a dream of employing 10,000 army vets. They're true to a mission. They like having military guys around because they set a mission, they execute. And they talk about radical candor. And then the conversation we're having now that I hear talk about is radical honesty. The word radical is it. Let's say it's candor versus honesty. And in, in thinking about you, the work you do and the terminology, do you think there's any difference between candor and honesty?
1: Oh, I don't know. I don't think it's really worth picking it apart. <laughs> you know, I think it's just about truth, like just living in your truth. You know, it's interesting because I have a bunch of fans that are like Navy Seals and Marines, and you know, it's it. And I, I'll say to these military guys, I'm like, "Why me? Aren't you like in this most hierarchical, disciplined organization in the world?" <laughs> right? And they'll say. Yeah, but the discipline is our training, but our situations are all spontaneous, right? And so it's about having the the structure to work together as a team to face, you know, unforeseen situations and consequences, right? With, with discipline and resolve, I think it's, oh, it's so interesting. And there's a camaraderie, I think, um, for people in the military that makes a difference, right? And it's it's um, It's not family. It's that you're coming together to do something important, and and you know it. So, yeah, I I like that. uh, That's a good story.
4: It's really. I've heard you talk about that, and I just get you to expand a bit because it's something you've talked about. I've also heard Reed talk about it. Is what was important to you was it wasn't family, it was a team, and I've got to say, I sat on a board, and they were always were a family. Yet they would do just awful things behind the scenes. They would do awful things to people. And I kept on saying, this is not a family unless you are the most dysfunctional family in the world. This is not, oh no, no, we're a family.
1: There are those too, aren't they? (laughs) You know, it's been really fun since I've left because I get to be on stage with like actual um, sports, professional sports coaches. And I was in the audience of this, I think it was a diversity and inclusion conference dni which makes me crazy i'm like it's like linens and things why do we have to call it that okay so i'm in the audience and the guy is up on stage who's the coach of the san jose spurs it's a a very popular um respected basketball team in the u.s and uh, san antonio spurs from texas and somebody in the audience says i have a question it must you know, you work so hard and you scour the country for these amazing young athletes who work the entire season playing their hearts out, winning game after game after game. And at the end of the season, they could be cut. Doesn't it just break your heart? And he goes, no, it's professional basketball. <laughs> they get it. And I'm in the audience thinking, why can't, why can't we just say that to people? Right. How come we can say it to a 24 year old basketball player, but we can't say it to a 45 year old you know, manager? Right. I mean, we could just say, you know, we hired you to do this thing and you've done a great job and now you're done and we don't need you to do that thing anymore. So let's figure out a place where you can go do something like it somewhere that it's really going to matter to them because that's what's really going to happen. That's what really happens in life. People don't join, join firms and stay with them for what, how long are we all going to be working now? Fifty years, you know. Just so gonna and and now you know the other thing is I look at a lot of fast growing, really agile, you know, companies that are bigger than little startups, and they don't want somebody who's only worked in one place, right? I mean, when you get to scale, you want people who've seen scale, right? The first fifty people aren't going to be the top fifty people when you're one hundred fifty thousand people. I mean, maybe. But highly, highly unlikely. So I did a talk the other day at um, a group of a thousand CEOs in Canada. They said, raise your hand if you're in the job that you had when you graduated from university. You know, zero hands go up. I'm like, well, raise your hand if you think the most important uh, human resources metric in your company is retention. <laughs> you know, a <laughs> thousand hands go up. I'm like, that does seem weird to you.
4: With all you know with your writing, work history, backstory, When you walk into your own home paddy to be with your own kids, if there was one piece of gold that you would say to any parent who has a child who is about to face the workforce, what's the piece of gold you would say to somebody to, to have them prepare their children for what's ahead?
1: To know that at the beginning, um, everybody wants everything and they want it now. This is why I always ha- had a hard time with the whole millennial moniker. I'm like, oh, come on, they're not, they just have cell phones. We were, you were a millennial, I was a millennial. What did you want? Everything. When do you want it now? And I would say to encourage them that every experience is part of learning about what it is that you love to do. So my algorithm for success is, is what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing something this company needs someone to be great at? One more time. Is what you love to do that you're extraordinarily good at doing something we need someone to be great at? And that takes time to find out. Sometimes you think you want to do something, you think you'll be great at it, and you do it and you realize you don't like it very much, right? And so I would say my piece of wisdom is to make sure that people understand all of the experiences as you start out in your career matter, even the icky ones, because now you know what you don't want.
4: Gold. More gold, Patty.
1: I mean, I've learned a lot about being 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 a great boss from working for bad ones.
4: Santa Cruz gold. Uh couple of things before I actually go, I'm very conscious of your time. Something, this is something I heard Reed talk about, I want your perspective on, and I think it's a situation that many, many leaders find themselves in today. He talked about when you guys were at Pure Software and through acquisition, he said in his words, two companies were slapped together. And I, I just want your perspective from a people perspective Viewpoint, can you can you bring two companies together to form a culture? If it's doable, what do you do?
1: Yeah, it's really hard. It, it's really hard, and it's um, almost never a merger. It's always an acquisition. You know, we, I threw those words around, you know, interchangeably back in the day when we were doing those things, and it wasn't true. <laughs> there's an acquirer and there's an acquiree. And I think that, I think it's very difficult unless it's absolutely clear what the synergies and complementary functions are. And then I think it's absolutely critical to take the redundant parts and figure them out fast. Because the, you always have redundancies right they've got a finance department you've got a finance department they've got a the, you got sales force you've got a sales force right and and the making the decisions about what the new company's going to be almost always takes longer than people are ready for i you know it's it's a tough it's it's a tough situation I've never been in one that went easy um, and when I coach other companies, I'm like, you know get ready." <laughs> Again, because it is the both companies coming together will create a new company, and it will be different than either one of them. So that's why you got to be clear about what you're gonna, what you what you hope to be, as the one company. But you know, it's tough.
3: as As a recruiter, I'm interested in your opinion on something that Gary's just touched on. Because when Gary and I both worked in in radio together we worked for a company who was highly creative and highly successful with their radio business. And we were taken over by a company who was highly successful, Uh not necessarily as creative, Uh but certainly they had the science of radio down pat. They understood Uh surveys and all that sort of stuff. My observation after the takeover was that the creativity was basically knocked out of the the network Gary and I worked for, which was to the detriment of the station and and the network in general. Mm -hmm. The question I have for you as a recruiter would be if you're in that situation where you are merging two companies who have the same product but different approaches, do you you need then to look at the upper management and go, okay, these guys are good at this, these guys are good at that, they're not necessarily going to work to the merged entity do we need a change of upper management, middle management, lower management, whatever your opinion may be?
1: Well, it, it, you know, so all of these things are speculative and they depend on where you are in the organization. So let's just take the case of you and Gary, right? As soon as you realize that's the kind of management, that's what the strengths are of the acquiring company and, and how they're going to run the business, now it's your choice, right? I mean, you, you, can't, you can't stay in a situation where you're an individual contributor and say, my opinion is that we should change out all of upper management. It's too late. <laughs> you know, you you know, so now it's your now you need to be clear about what's the right thing for your career. You know, the business is gonna make the decisions the business is going to make and it may or may not work out. I mean, I see it all the time. All the time, all the time, all the time. Be, you know, especially where you know the bank needs to is going to acquire the uh, the fintech startup because they're they do mobile and they need mobile. And then they, you know, then they torture them and they all leave and wonder why they can't retain people. <laughs> you know, they torture them with rules and process. So, you know, there has to be flexibility on both sides. It, you know, there are companies that do it pretty well. I mean, I know. Um, I know a number of friends who have started companies that have been acquired by Google and depending on where they are in the Google giant matrix of organizations they're pretty good at at letting them operate a little bit on their own for a while and then then being been telling them you know who needs to stay and who needs to go so I, you know I don't think uh, uh, the trends have changed in my lifetime in the Silicon Valley from, you know, you work for us now and you follow our rules and you have to, you know, pledge allegiance to the new company flag to maybe we're better off just leaving them wholly owned subsidiaries and leaving them alone. Right. And, and that's let's take it. Here's a great example in the US when Amazon bought Zappos. You know, Zappos has this incredible culture of holacracy, which I'm saying cynically because I'm not really that much of a fan of it. But um, what they did was Amazon uh, took over the things that Zappos, that's not that hard. They took over the distribution of shoes, right? Amazon could give you shoes in one day because they already had the mechanism for doing it. And they left Zappos in Zappos culture, which is now, in essence, customer service. Because that's what they were always good at, right? So now they're the ones that call you up and go, oh, no, I'll send you another pair of, of boots tomorrow, right? And they'll be here before you know it. They're on your doorstep. And so they left that unique culture because it was able to respond really well to customers, probably more so than the Amazon monolith. So I think there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat anymore. And, you know, you guys were part, you know, I see this media buyout stuff all the time. It's really fascinating. I was just telling my editor about, um, you know, I get called from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I get called to be interviewed all the time. And these people will call me and they'll have these questions about work that I'm like, have you been watching like, 1960s TV. <laughs> mad Men. Mad <man. laughs> <Mad Where
0: did, laughs> leave it to beaver. Where, yeah,
1: like, mad, like, where is this, this coming from, Luke? Is this Mary Tyler Moore show? I mean, what's going on? And then I, and I say to them, I'm like, are you in the offices of the Wall Street Journal? You're freelance, right? <laughs> they all, they all, free. most of them have never worked for a company. I'm like, you guys are reporting on work and you don't actually work and it's crazy.
3: It's funny,
1: right? isn't it? Yeah, and I'm like, you are the future of work. It's you, right? It's, it's that you're a, you're a storyteller. And, and it doesn't really matter what the medium is now. I mean, the, I think that's the future of media, which is what's the appropriate venue and distribution model for any kind of story. Is it a book? Is it a podcast? Like I always wanted to do podcasts, just podcasts. I wanted to go straight to this. And people are like, well, the book will get you there. I'm like, no, I don't want to do book. I want to do hardcover book.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so who knew? Just on the book, I loved your book, Patty. No, and thank you. I've been through it a number of times and I recommend it to leaders as a, a a great context for thinking differently around culture. My question is: when you write a book as an author, you then, as you have, you go on the road, you promote it, you do signings, you're doing speaking gigs, you're doing loads of interviews with the Wall Street Journal. People are asking you questions and a lot of times you're hearing a lot of feedback because people love to tell the author their story and their situation. Given you have curated all that information, if you were to write a next chapter to Powerful, what would it be about?
1: I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I will, but um, there's. I'm doing a lot of work with uh, women CEOs, uh, partly because I've worked with a lot of CEOs, and the, you know, it, I have the experience of being with people where it's lonely at the top. But I think it's a particularly different experience for women. You know, I was taken aback by the story of the Away co-founders and how they messed up and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the, there was a terrible email and bad management, all that kind of stuff. But I've seen 150 tech bros doing exactly the same thing. You know, it's, and it's like, you know, nobody ever picks them apart for the four ping pong tables. Right, and so I think there's something in particular about how women and families operate. This next, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I remember talking to somebody early on when everybody was talking about millennials. I said, "You know what's going to change for millennials?" They're like, "What?" And I'm like, "They'll grow up." <laughs> when my son turned 30, I'm like, "So what are you?" I call you a thirlennial now. Do you get a, a new name? <laughs> <laughs> So you know, I don't know. I don't. I. It's just fun, sort of poking my nose in everybody's business all over the world these days. I'm enjoying that. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know. Uh, go ahead. No, I just you know I get invited now to like these huge corporations. And I don't know that I'm going to do that much anymore because they, you know, the top gets it and the people coming into the organization get it. And the fat middle, you know, when you have an organization that's 150 years old or 50 years old, everybody in middle management got promoted from within. So they all got rewarded for doing it the way we used to do it everybody running the company is literally in place because of the way they've always done it so that's a hard nut to crack you know a startup person you can just go slap everybody around and go okay be smart okay stop it and they do
3: so if everybody in middle management's doing it the way they've always done it is that their fault or is that the company's fault
1: it's both but you know it takes both of them to undo it and it's very hard to undo, you know, a 50,000-person organization with 10 people at the top. You know, it's just hard. And and, they'll, and the methodologies are to waterfall everything. You know, I mean, I, I spend lots of time with HR people. And I'm like, seriously, stop with the global corporate initiatives. <laughs> it's like, what was last year's? Do you remember? No, nobody does. Nope. And the year before that, no, nope. zero, right? The theme du jour, right? Just to pick a couple of parts of the organization and let them experiment. You know, this giant, you know, it doesn't have to have a T-shirt to make a difference.
3: Yeah. Gary, take a note. Cancel the Mojo Show Global Global Initiative for this year, will you? Please? The T-shirts.
1: The T-shirts. Or, <laughs> or, yeah. The, the t- and tell your mom she doesn't
3: get work. That's right. Sorry, mom, you're out. That's right. right. We're doing a T-shirt
4: that says context, not control. That's, that, that's, that, there you that go. that'll be a T-shirt by
3: Friday. Let me tell you. Well, this is, this is the boardroom meeting for this week, you yeah, see, pretty much, is because I want to do, I want to do tea towels. I, I think tea <laughs> towels are better than T-shirts.
1: I do too. That's cute.
3: Tea towels are so 2019. <laughs> uh,
4: Patty, <laughs> you just mentioned leadership. Is, I've got two quick things, three quick things before we finish. Um, uh-huh. You mentioned the military. You've talked about Reed Hastings, who you began Netflix with. And when you decided to go to work with Reed Hastings at Netflix, a friend commented to you, huh, you're going to go work with the animal. Why, why was Reed known as the animal?
1: He's an intense guy. He, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's an engineer. He's pretty serious. He thinks that he's very factual. Um, You know, he's very crisp. He doesn't like no for an answer. Um, And he always asks why. It's, you know, it's exhausting. I used to tell him that working for him was like getting out out of the shower and putting your finger in the light socket on purpose. (laughs) But, um, But he asks a lot. And it's fun. Right. It's he is a great example of what, uh, you know, stunning colleagues, what working with great people can be like, because you're like, damn, I can do better than this. I'll show him. (laughs) And he would do the same thing, too. Right. When you have a whole team of people that are all like, you know, let's let's produce the optimum thing that we can produce as a team. And that's really fun. Right, that's and, and you know if you both think about it, like when you talk about joy at work, it's it's when you're with other people doing something that's really hard that you only get to do at work. Right, that's not what happens in your family. It's not what happens, you know, in your club basketball team. Maybe sometimes, but it's what happens at work where you you know you're like wow that was great. I love I love you know one of the quote radical honesty stories. I love debate when I lose. Like you know, when I walk into it and I'm absolutely sure I'm right and somebody talks me out of it, you know, in a really pure intellectual way. It's like that's fine.
4: If we just talk about people that we work with to just elaborate on that little conversation. We start we started by describing Reed, then you talked about working in a team. If I went to Bethany, who was a teammate of yours at Netflix, how would Bethany describe Patty McCord in three words?
1: Um, pushes me hard. Bethany's at Netflix. She left Netflix and came back. All right. She's a vice. Yeah, she's a vice president there. I hmm. saw her not too long ago. She's amazing. Yeah, and, and uh, what was she telling me? She's like, I got all these, I, I got so many new things I want to try, I can't wait. She left to do another company and she couldn't do them. And so she knew back at Netflix she could experiment again. But I, th- you know, I, I left, I'm, I was, I'm not a very hands-on manager. I give people a lot of room um, and expect a lot. I think it's in expectations. I mean, I think that's a part of leadership that we don't get a we don't shine a light on enough you know i i say sometimes you know if you expect mediocrity that's exactly what you're going to get but if you expect excellence you'd be surprised what you get even from mediocre people yeah i mean i and i can't tell you you know i i meet with CEOs and they're like, well, you know, my HR people can't do it. My, my head of HR wouldn't do these things you're talking about because she's not smart enough. And I said, does this person report to you? I, what are you doing with somebody on your direct staff that you don't think is smart? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, and that's you know, how do I get my HR person to do, you know act differently? I'm like, expect more from them. Tell them to stop speaking HR speak and start speaking the you know the words of the business expect them to read the p and l expect them to know where revenue comes from you know lift the bar and people will and people will do it you know people always want to like do that thing that's a little bit out of reach
4: we've got a great friend of ours I love podcasting because you get to make transatlantic contacts and friendships with different podcasters and people like yourself. And one of the guys that we've had on the show a couple of times is Ryan Munsey, who runs a very good podcast called The Better Human Project. And Ryan said, whatever he reads a book, he's always thinking to himself, what's the author trying to say? With the book powerful, what is Patty McCord trying to say?
1: That you can do it too, right? I wanted to have not the voice of um, either academia or somebody opining about ways people could work together better. I wanted to be able to say, "Look, I here's how I did it." I mean, I I sometimes describe my book as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Netflix Culture Deck <laughs> because you know when I went out to consult, people would just throw that that deck on the, you know, print it out and put it in front of me and go, we want to do that. And I would say, yeah, okay, well, it took 10 years to write that. So, you know, so you want to know how to do that. Right. And so what I wanted to do was say, here, here's how we did this, how we went about it. Here's how we think about it. Here's what I learned as I went through. And the underlying message is, and if I can do it, you can too.
4: Patty, I, as I said, I recommend the book often. I think for any leader who has a team or aspires to build a team, it's a great read. I listened to the audio book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, where, where do people go to find out more about you, your work, what you're doing, your speaking jobs over there? Where's the hub for all Patty's work?
1: My website, pattymaccord.com. This is where all that stuff lives. And the best way to get the book is probably on that.
4: Well, app. thank you for finding a little bit of time in your busy calendar for us, Patty. It's been an absolute treat. I honestly I've got another three hours of stuff to talk to you about, but I'm, I'm conscious that where we've run out. Uh, thank <laughs> you so much for your time. It was an absolute honor.
1: You're very welcome.
3: Say hi to your mom <laughs> <laughs> The Mojo Radio Show. Slimmer down, your
2: noisy screaming. Bling.
3: When I realized this morning that we were talking to Patty, you know what occurred to me is it's all in the timing. Can you imagine if this virus thing that's happening now happened back in the day when they were in the warehouse packing VHS tapes or DVDs into envelopes and sending them off to people? Can you imagine how busy they'd be now with all these people at home going, oh, we'll just get a Netflix? <laughs> Can you imagine if this virus happened during a California
4: wildfire or the wildfires in Australia? Imagine what would happen oh, if those yeah. two things happened at once.
3: Yeah, you don't think about you, those oh, things, yeah. do you? I think about that in the weekend yeah. The Mojo Radio Show... Lockdown.
0: And I don't
4: be alone. So, folks, a little extra segment is called The Lockdown because essentially the studio is locked down. Everyone's working remotely. Many countries of the world were being forced into isolation. And this is just something I found really curious. Here are some examples of companies who have made use of their time. Scandinavian Airlines... Have fast tracked training to help their staff turn into healthcare workers so they can then support the Swedish healthcare system. Bauer, who make hockey equipment, are now making medical shields for hospital workers. SpaceX, a very high profile company, and we kind of know what they do, are making hand sanitizer to donate to hospitals and other businesses. Chinese battery and Automaker BYD is now the world's number one face mask producer. Oh, wow. Louis Vuitton is making not fragrance in their factories but making hand sanitizer. Shane Warne's Gin Distillery 708 is not making gin right now, it's making hand sanitizer. GM have cordoned off their factory space to make ventilators for hospitals. Zara, you know your way around a good Zara. Mm-hmm. Well, their factories and logistics teams are taking materials and making stuff for healthcare workers and patients. There's a company in Italy who are producing medical supplies, which is fabrics because they are typically a fashion designer. They're making medical supplies. Haynes, famous sporting goods company around the world, they are making
3: scrubs. So well, you missed one. Did you see in 10 days the Dyson company created and built a ventilator for hospitals to use, and their plan is Mm. to build 15,000 of them and distribute them in the UK and around the world. In 10 days, they designed Mm. and built one. How crazy is that? I mean, you've
4: got to rate Dyson. I mean, they are in just 10 days, and I guarantee he got what was common in ventilators, Mm -hmm. and I guarantee he said, we can do better. And he then has to make it happen under deadlines. So it wasn't just the idea... And making a prototype, but then you've got to apply all the same thinking to actually making it happen, and then but uh, and then all the same thinking to how do we get them out to New York, London, California? So the making part goes right through it. I mean, the other part from Dyson's whatever he makes is going to be amazing and it's going to work better than anything in the world. I mean, you've got to rate that guy. What it made me think about though is. What can each of us bake? Because we can either spend our time making something for someone else, which is all the stuff I just talked about, or you can use this time of isolation to make something for yourself today to improve the you of tomorrow to be better than the you of today, which can in turn inspire your team or your kids, your community, but it's about making. And we often hear about Creativity. But I think if you say to people, this time allows you time for creativity, the problem is that when people focus on creativity, their identity says, in a lot of cases, I'm not that creative. I'm not one of them. So people don't. However, if you think about making during this period, then the outcome is you get get creativity. But the making part is the important part. So whether you make dinner tonight for your loved ones, but make a dinner you haven't done before, which challenges you, or you make a new entry in your journal with color and drawings and doodles. You make a, I don't know, dream board on Pinterest. You make something in the woodshed that you're experimenting with. You make a new garden, your backyard or your balcony. If you're on your computer, make a movie of old photos to send to your parents or your grandparents, because you know that they're missing that contact. Make a start on a book that you've always wanted to write. Make a start on a project you've been putting off for years, but make a model aeroplane. And the this, way this came to me is I spoke to a guy during the week called Jai Smith, who I'm going to get on the show. And he, like me, has got a lot of time on his hands because he does speaking gigs and workshops, and, of course, everything's been cancelled. And he's an agency creative, super smart guy. But he told me that he's making miniature characters like tiny dragons. And what he does is he's not, he doesn't make the dragons, he paints them. So if you imagine a dragon which is a, a, as big as your thumbnail, he gets a tiny little paintbrush and starts painting them in different colours. But he told me he's making these things. But the outcome is you get creativity and inspiration. They go hand in hand. But I just think we're all getting sucked in the vortex of doing And because we distract ourselves with what everybody else is making, we watch YouTube other people creating and other people making.
3: We look at socials. Here's what I bade. The other thing you could make is you could make someone's day. Like you think about the scenes in Italy of everybody out on their balconies singing up and down the, the streets and the people in London the other night who went outside and applauded the healthcare workers. Someone came up with that idea. That's right. But they're making someone's day. So... That's something else you could do. Well, somebody came up with the idea,
4: but then they made it happen. So the world needs more makers, right? Just like that. And if we sit down and put our minds to it, the challenge today is that it's common for people to live in other people's worlds who are making, but we don't sit and do it for ourselves. And I think it could be a combo of what's already there and you reformat it like our friend Kid Rock doing a mashup with a song. It could be a tweak of a previous idea or it could be something which does not exist or it could just be something where you start an idea and it spreads like it did in London, but somebody had it and somebody made it happen and the second person bought into it, that the a third person, a fourth person, before you know it, you get the Prime Minister standing on the steps of 10 Downing Street. So for me, think about, and we could all do this, with what What will each of us make in the next day, two days, three days? Because creativity is the outcome. Spend this time wisely because that creativity you're developing and fostering now, you can then use when the world hopefully resumes some normality. Uh, and you'll increase your
3: creative spirit. I think there's a lot to it. Well, Bunnings are actually dropping off a boatload of timber today just for me to play with speaking of deliveries (laughs) that might be them (laughs) let me look out the window hang on it's ap (laughs) he's got a trailer on (laughs) (laughs) so there may
4: or may not be a show next week folks we're going to wrap this up now if you don't know where to start all i want you to tell me is what are you going to make today that's it don't it doesn't have to impress anybody else Is it going to be something you post or do you need to think to yourself is what are we going to make this week? Today, tomorrow, the next day, what
3: are we going to make? Well, sitting here listening to you talk, I'm actually going to combine last week's show with Charlie and what you just talked about. A couple of months ago, I started on an idea for the Mojo radio show. So my challenge for myself this week is to finish that in a way that I'm totally happy with.
4: Yeah, cool. That's good. So for all of us, uh, I think it's easy. The the action, which is the French for action, is to work out what are you going to make? Dinner, something in the garden, something for yourself, something for someone else, something with a child, whatever. But just make it, create it, something that wasn't there before, a tweak, anarchy, (laughs) whatever you like. (laughs) But just make something and stop living in other people's creativity. Um, AP,
2: what are you thinking about making? Well, I'm trying to find something I can make with uh, all the leftover corks from today's purchase. Maybe a small boat. Oh, my God.
3: What happens when you let someone loose with nothing to do? (laughs) (laughs) It's the best. It is the best. So if you've been on the journey with us for the last couple
4: of seasons, you'll know that we've talked about people in the rock industry who experiment and make use of different sounds. And you'll hear us refer often back to Brian Eno, legendary producer Work With You Too. Last season we did a show on Edge, which I thought was fantastic, which showed him experimenting with what he called experimenting with different sonics to work out what he could make with sonics. So if we tie those two guys together and we talk about I guess in a way it was kind of a the next phase of U2 with their sound, their experimenting and making something different to what was traditionally U2. You'd have to say that Elevation and the sound off that
3: album was something they made which was different, wouldn't you? That guitar sound was just kick-ass. Absolutely. We're at...
2: The Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoo sound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.